morning, brothers and sisters. Uh, can I get you to keep your Bibles open to Luke 24? Uh, there is a blank page where an outline normally is, uh, and you can fill that in as you see fit. Um, Luke 24, we're on page 1066 of the Church Bibles. Page 1066, Luke 24, which we just heard read to us. Let me lead us in prayer again. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you've been speaking to us as we've heard it read. And we now pray, Father, as we consider this passage in more detail together, that you will continue to uh, speak to our hearts uh, and help us to see more clearly uh, who we are and uh, uh, what your plan and purposes are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today in St. Mary's, it's AGM Sunday. Uh, those of you who haven't uh, decided whether to stay for the AGM or not, can I encourage you to, to do so, uh, particularly if you're on the electoral roll, uh, because this is an opportunity for you to, be, to be have your say uh, in, the, in, the, uh, in the running of the cathedral. Uh, and it's important uh, that we play our parts uh, in that kind of way. I thought it would be helpful on an AGM Sunday uh, to be reminded of where we're up to in God's plans and purposes uh, so that we know what things that we ought to be doing uh, as God's people together. Uh, and this passage helps us do that. Uh, this passage is in um, part of the uh, accounts of after Jesus' resurrection. Uh, I think on Easter Sunday you looked at chapter 24, verses 1 to 12, uh, and you saw the empty tomb and the message of the angels, He is not here, He is risen. And you remember, um, the women who were the witnesses of that went back to inform the disciples uh, the apostles, and they were generally dismissed. The guy thought they were talking rubbish. Although Peter went to the tomb himself, he found the grave clothes there, and he went away amazed. Well, in the bits that we didn't read, Jesus met two other disciples on the road to Emmaus. They spoke at length with him, but initially they failed to recognize him. And when they finally realized who he was, he disappeared from their sight. And now these two disciples come back to the apostles in Jerusalem to report these things to them. And they were still talking about this when, when something pretty amazing happens. Look at verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. How would you feel if you saw your dead friend standing in front of you? be pretty scary, wouldn't it? Well, when the disciples saw Jesus, they were terrified. From verse 37. Well, they were startled and frightened, and they, they thought they saw a spirit. They thought, this must be a ghost. Now, they shouldn't have been so surprised about the resurrection, because Jesus himself had predicted it. It's always meant to be. The Old Testament was about it. But they... When it happened, they got ah, so scared. And Jesus was keen to show them that, that he's not a ghost. His resurrection is a true physical resurrection. He's, he's resurrected in body, not just in spirit. So he says, come, touch me. I'm real. See verse 39. See my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. His body might have been transformed. He could materialize at will. But there was still continuity with his body before his death. Still me, he says. 
But there are people today, even within the Christian church, who want to deny the bodily resurrection of Christ. Some of them hold key church positions, particularly in the West. But Jesus will not allow us to do that. He wanted his disciples to know, and he wants us to know, that he resurrected in the body. Didn't just live on in the memory and spirit of the disciples. In fact, they didn't even believe until he, he literally and physically stood there in front of them and chided them for not believing. And to prove that he was really physical, he did something that, well, only someone who's really physical can do. Look at verse 41 to 43. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate it before them. The bodily resurrection of Jesus was beyond the shadow of doubt. It was really him. Jesus had risen. The resurrection of Jesus was a real, physical, historical event. And this risen Jesus had something very important to tell them. And what he wanted to tell them was that his death and resurrection was actually a fulfillment of the Old Testament. It's the same things that he'd been speaking to his, his two disciples about earlier. It must have been very important to him. Look at verse 44 to 48. He said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, those are the, the three divisions of the Old Testament, must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. I don't know if it's an instantaneous thing or it's a result of many hours of deep Bible study, but either way he opened their minds. They read the Old Testament Scriptures before, but they didn't really understand them because they, they didn't really read them in light of Christ. But he opened their minds to see that it's about him. And friends, we must always read and teach the Old Testament in light of Christ. If I preach a sermon to hear from the Old Testament without showing you Christ, then if I preach a sermon to hear from the Old Testament that you could have heard in a mosque or a synagogue, then then I have failed as a Christian preacher. The Old Testament is not just about morality. Jesus showed his disciples of the Old Testament pointed to him. And as he did that, he showed them there were three essential steps in God's plan for the world. Have a look at them with me in verse 46. He says this, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer, that's number one, Number two, and on the third day he should rise from the dead. And number three, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. It's a simple three-point plan. The Christ suffers, the Christ rises again, and repentance and forgiveness of sins are preached in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And that, Jesus says, is all in the Old Testament. So what I want us to do, just for a few minutes, is to go back and, and look at it there. 
Now, the whole Old Testament speaks of Christ. There's so many places we can go, but let me just take one example from each of those three divisions that Jesus gives uh, and, uh, and look at the, the three points in that plan uh, from each of them. So we'll look at one from the Law of Moses, one from the Psalms, and one from the Prophets. All right? And uh, we'll look at each part of that three-point plan. The first point in the three-point plan is that the Christ should suffer. What does the Old Testament say about Christ's suffering? Well, let's look at the law. Uh, so many things you could look at in the law. You could look at the sacrifices. You could look at... Well, but, but, but let's go all the way back to Genesis. Beginning of Genesis, where the first mention of the suffering of God's promised one is made. That's in Genesis 3. Genesis 3, we hear an account of the fall, how the man and the woman rebelled against God, and how they... God, God brought his judgment upon the man, the woman, and the serpent because of sin. And in Genesis 3.15, Genesis 3.15, God pronounces judgment on the serpent for leading the man and woman into sin. And this is what he says in Genesis 3, chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise or crush your head, and you shall bruise or crush his heel. He shall bruise or crush your head, you shall bruise or crush his heel. Now that's what humankind was, this little ray of hope in a, in a very dark chapter. Somehow or other, in the future, the seed of the woman that is a descendant of Eve, a human being, will crush the serpent's head. And yet, in doing so, his heel will be crushed. He himself will be hurt. He himself will suffer. That's very non-specific, isn't it? It's just a hint, a pointer, that the, that the human one, the serpent crusher, the one who bring that victory over that serpent, will himself suffer. And, and suffer he did. Because we know, the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus took flesh and blood. He was a real man. That he might destroy the works of the devil. And he did so by his death. By suffering. And in doing so, he fulfilled the promise of Genesis 3. You wouldn't have been able to tell from Genesis 3 how it's going to work out. But when you see how it works out, you say, ah, that's, that's the fulfillment of that, you see. We'll take another example from the Psalms, the second section. Psalm 22, which we read in our Old Testament reading earlier, was a, was a Psalm of David. David was a prototype king. Uh, the anointed one, the Christ, right? is a picture and a shadow as well as the ancestor of the Christ who was to come. And the Psalms find their ultimate fulfillment, not, not on our lips, but on the lips of the Messiah, the Christ. And, and Psalm 22, you remember, cries, it starts with a cry of a, a man being abandoned by God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as we read it, we saw he was scorned and despised and mocked and ridiculed and he was poured out. He was thirsty. He was lying in the dust of death. He was encircled by a company of evildoers who pierced his hands and his feet. He stared, he gloated at his people, cast lots for his clothing. And you know, all those things are happening at the crucifixion of Jesus, weren't they? He experienced the darkness of judgment, the awful, the awful darkness of bearing the sin of the world, the punishment of the wrath of the Father against human rebellion, and he did so as, as that king, that Christ of whom David wrote. David himself suffered first before entering the kingdom, and that's what the Son of Man did, the Son of David did. 
that Christ must suffer. And the third example is from the prophets. Here we can look, uh, the most classic example of course is Isaiah 53, isn't it? Isaiah had earlier described this, this person called the servant of the Lord, one who would bring justice to the nations. And then he says this about the servant in Isaiah 53, verse 5 and 6. Let me read it to you. If you want to look it up, it's on page 742. It says, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. We are all like sheep have gone astray, which we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The servant would be the one who would die for the sins of God's people. The servant would be our substitute under God's punishment. He would take the, the, the punishment we deserved for sin. And that's, and that's exactly what Jesus did. He took all our guilt, all our shame, all our judgment, bore on himself as he hung on the cross. He died for our sins. In fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah, Psalm of David, the promise of the Father in the garden. Christ must suffer. The second point of that three-point plan was that the Christ must rise. And let's think about those three examples that we had uh, from the Old Testament again. The first one from Genesis 3, we find that although it's the serpent's head that is crushed, it is only the human's heel. That is, the one who, who, who is the, the human who overcomes is, suffers, but is not ultimately destroyed. Again, it's very non-specific. God doesn't lay his whole plan out on the table at this point, but, but it's, it's just a hint. Uh, a crack of light in the darkness of Genesis 3 that, that suggests a hope beyond the crushing of the serpent. And then in Psalm 22. Do you remember Psalm 22 as we read just now? Suddenly, somewhere halfway through the psalm, like the Messiah is like he's dying, and suddenly there's a twist. Suddenly he's saved, he's answered, he speaks of God's name to his brothers, he praises him in the midst of the congregation. God has heard his cry, God has rescued him. What's happened? And then our third example from Isaiah 53, a similar thing. That suffering servant whose, whose life was a guilt offering, who, who pours on his life to death. We keep on reading Isaiah 53, you say in the end, paradoxically, he sees his offspring, that the fruit of his labor, he prolongs his days. That he's given a portion among the great, he divides a spoil with the strong, he is exalted. He's alive, but then he died. How does that work? Well, as Jesus stood before his disciples on that first Easter day, the whole Old Testament, which, which they would have been exposed to since childhood, would have made, made sense to them, really, for the very first time. Jesus did die, and he rose again. It was all about him. He was that, he was that missing piece that suddenly made the whole jigsaw puzzle coherent. He was the one who had been referring to all along in direct prophecies and types and shadows in what the kingship of the Old Testament was prefiguring, what the sacrificial system of the Old Testament was set up to prefigure, or his life, death and resurrections, what the whole history of Israel as a nation was set up to foreshadow and yet contrast with. He was a central figure in all God's plans and purposes. And there he was, risen from the dead, patiently explaining all these things to them. 
Christ must suffer. Christ must rise. And then point three of the three-point plan. Remember what it was? Repentance and forgiveness of sins must be preached to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. The word repentance means a change of mind. We've been living the wrong way. We need to change our minds. We need to start again. That is, we must turn from living for ourselves, living for false religion, living for something else, and live for Jesus, the true King. That is repentance. And when we repent, God forgives us. All our sins, everything that we've done, is not counted against us anymore. We're considered right with God because of Jesus' death in our place. But the thing that would have been surprising, perhaps, about repentance and forgi- about this third point, is that repentance and forgiveness wasn't just for Israel, but for the whole world. And that's the thing that Jesus had to point out to them. But that was there in the Old Testament as well. In Genesis chapter 3, the, the serpent crusher saves the whole human race, because why? The serpent is responsible for the whole human race, not just Israel, isn't it? And so the gospel must go out to all the world. In Psalm 22, you read that the ends of the earth remember what happened to Israel's Messiah and they turn to God. The message of what happened to Israel's Messiah goes out to to the whole world. The ends of the earth turn to God. Earlier on in the book of Isaiah, the servant is told in Isaiah 49.6, It is too small a thing for you to, to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Judah, to bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will make you a light for the Gentiles, that you might bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. So part three of God's plan was there in the Old Testament as well. Salvation starts with the reconstruction of Israel, the repentance of Israel. But it's broadened to include the Gentiles, the whole world. Salvation is brought to the ends of the earth as repentance and forgiveness of sins is proclaimed. And the people who would start the ball rolling in this were the apostles. Jesus says to them in verse 48, He says, You are witnesses of these things. They were the eyewitnesses who saw the fact that Jesus really did die Jesus really did rise again. And the Old Testament was fulfilled. They're the eyewitnesses that testify to, to the nations about the truth of the resurrection. And to us. They started at Jerusalem. And their witness has gone all over the world, as Jesus says. Like they continue to bear witness through the New Testament scriptures. But Jesus didn't tell them to go and bear witness straight away. Something they had to wait for first. In verse 49. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Jesus told them to wait until the Spirit came upon them. The Spirit came upon them. They would be God's recreated people. and They would have the power to do the work that he had called them to do. Now the Spirit came upon them at Pentecost. They boldly proclaimed the gospel. They did their job. But the work of proclaiming repentance and forgiveness of sins to all the nations, well, that still continues, isn't it? That's that's where we come in. We're not witnesses of the resurrection the same way as they were. 
haven't seen the risen Christ with our own eyes. But like them, we have been given God's Spirit. And we've inherited the mission of taking their witness of the real death and the real resurrection of Jesus to all the nations. We have inherited the task of telling the world that Christ had to die, that Christ had to die for sins, that Christ had to rise again, according to the Old Testament Scriptures. And we have inherited the job of proclaiming repentance and forgiveness of sins to all the nations. And that is the task which dominates our priorities, both individually and as a community of God's people together. Week by week, our preachers proclaim this gospel from this music stand. And day by day, you proclaim this gospel at home, at work, with your friends. This is what we are on about. The gospel must go out. Repentance and forgiveness of sins must be proclaimed in all the world. So, brothers and sisters, we know where we're up to in God's three-point plan. Part one says that Christ must die. Christ died. Part two says that Christ must rise. The Christ rose. Part three says repentance and forgiveness of sins must be preached to all nations. And that's what's happening now. If you are someone here who hasn't yet repented and had your sins forgiven, can I urge you, Repent and turn to Christ and your sins will be forgiven. You must do that. Jesus is the one who forgive your sins, give you new life and enlist you in his service. You'll be given the Spirit to empower you to be part of that process of taking the gospel of repentance and forgiveness to all nations. And for all of us who are here, whether we stay for the AGM or not, we are part of that process. We have our mission. Repentance, forgiveness of sins, be preached to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus, the Christ, has indeed died for us. And thank you for the forgiveness that his death brings. Thank you that the Lord Jesus, the Christ, did indeed rise from the dead. We thank you that he is the risen, exalted King who rules the world. And we thank you that the message of repentance and forgiveness of sins has reached even to us. That we have heard that message and your Spirit has worked in our hearts and enabled us to turn to Jesus and trust in him. And we pray, Lord, if there's anyone here who that hasn't happened for yet, that, that Lord, by your Spirit, please, would you make that happen for them. Father, we pray that you will enable us uh, to be people who clearly and boldly take this message of repentance and forgiveness to our friends, our families, our colleagues, and wider afield to the world. Give us a true sense of of your your plans give us a true sense of where we fit in and we pray that the day will come when many more people turn to the Lord Jesus and bow before him we know that he deserves it and so we ask this Lord in his name Amen